If you have your Bibles, take them and turn to Luke chapter 10. And this is the last of a little short, short mini-series that we've been doing in the book of Luke. And it's been an opportunity for us to look at parables and people and uh, a few different settings to get a different perspective. Um, you know, we, we do get so caught up in the world in which we live, and it squeezes us into its mold. Um, the way we think, the way we act, the way that we look at things. And um, as we look at these situations, we find how Jesus comes along and he, he shifts our perspective again. And he reorients our thinking so that we get a kingdom way of looking at things. And so uh, we're doing that again this morning in our last of uh, you know, six messages in the book of Luke. And so I want to read uh, with us uh, this morning the first um, 28 uh, verses of Luke chapter 10. And make a couple comments on those, and then we'll turn it over to Mike. And the real uh, focus of our message this morning is the Good Samaritan. But as I realized uh, as I was studying this before I went on holidays, and, you know, it just catches you time to time, the Good Samaritan is embedded in a context that matters. And so it helps that we get a look at the context. So uh, follow along with me as we read from the Word of the Lord together, Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. He said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one in the way. Whatever house you enter first, say, Peace be to this house, and if the Son of Peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God is to come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazon! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. The one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Or who knows the Father is, or who, who the Father is, except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Then, turning to his disciples, he said privately, "Blessed are the eyes that see what you see." 
For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to them, and he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. So, Father, we have heard your word, and it is a lot for us to take in. And it's only an introduction, Father, to where we want to get. But thank you for the way that you continue to open our eyes to see things that we would not be able to see on our own. Thank you for recording for us what is necessary, that we might know what is necessary for eternal life. Father, you know every heart in this room. You know every mind in this room. You know every will in this room. Would you now direct them and orient them towards you, I pray, through the work of your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. So the context matters. And in this particular text, which we're going to get to, is is, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. The context is that of a missions report. It's of a group of 72 individuals have gone out for a period of time, and now they have come back, and they are talking and sharing with Jesus about some of the things that they encountered along the way. And so, again, what we have set before us is a missions context. It's a missions report. And just to tick in your mind, or to stick in your mind, the lawyer that we're going to be introduced to later on is part of this missions report. A couple of things that I think is helpful to just embed in our minds as we think about missions and the missions report is four observations that we make quickly. And I'm just going to fly over these. These are for you to think about maybe a little bit more later on. But the first is that there, there is a reality to missions. And it is a tough reality. Missions is tough work. Jesus in verses 1 to 3 say it's tough because the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. There's a great amount of of, of field that is ready to be taken in, but there are few people to go out and take it in. Missions is tough because there's so much to do. Another thing that makes missions tough is that there's a flip that takes place. Jesus says to them, I send you out like sheep among wolves. Now, any fairy tale that we've seen in any story that we've seen in any understanding that we have about sheep and wolves is not that the sheep go among the wolves, but the wolves go among the sheep. And so Jesus flips that down and he says, no, missionaries are people with a, a character and a quality about them, a gentleness and, a, and a, a softness, and they go out into a fierce, tough world. And so Jesus says, I am sending you out like sheep amidst wolves. He also says to them that you are not to take a whole bunch of stuff with you. Basically, go with a shirt on your back. Don't take a whole bunch of food. Don't take extra clothes. Don't take extra shoes. You just go. Trust me to provide. Trust me to give you a place to stay. Trust me to feed you. That's tough stuff. But that's the reality of missions. Going lightly. Trusting God. Waiting for those to whom we are sent to provide for our needs. And then there's a a fourth thing, and that's the the content of our conversation. For he says, when you go out amongst those cities, talk to them about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, beloved, is what Christ has come to make it possible for us to enter into. The kingdom of God is, is, is the, the world or, or the, the way in which God rules. It's the, it's, the, 
it's the ethic of Christ. It's the, it's the family of God. It's the rule of God. And so we're to talk to people about and invite them to enter into the kingdom of God. That's the reality of missions. But there's another reality that flows out of that, and that's this one which is rejection. Because as we've read, there was at least four towns in which these individuals went to, and each of these towns, there was a, a very clear note of rejection. He says, woe to a few of them as well. He says, it's going to be worse off for you than for these people because of what you have received and rejected. And he says, you're going to go to some towns and they're going to just flatly reject you. Sometimes we find that hard to take because we're all about acceptance. We want people to like us. We want people to accept us. Jesus says, no, when you go with my message into the mission field, you are going to face rejection. And I think that's just a further reality about missions is that rejection is part and parcel of that. Missions is not always a win. The third thing that we see about this is there's this great rejoicing that takes place. Um, and it's not rejoicing over what we would think about. Because in verse uh, 17, we find that the 72 come back and they're saying, God, you should see the kinds of stuff that's going on. We've got demons that are listening to us and, and they're going out and, and, and you know people are being healed. And Jesus has given them all kinds of authority to tread upon serpents and you know, to not get, um, you know, to, to tread on, on scorpions and not get bothered by their bites or by their sins. He's given them all authority over everything. We think that should be something to be excited about. He says, no, don't get excited about that. Because there's a greater miracle that has taken place. It's a miracle of inner change. He says, no, rejoice. Not that you can do all these things in my name. Rejoice that your name is written down in heaven. Rejoice that there has been a work of, of change and transformation and revelation in your life such that you are part of the kingdom of God. That is something to rejoice in. In the midst of discouragement, in the midst of rejection, in the midst of God doing miraculous things, our focus ought to be thankfulness that God has opened our eyes to see the beauty of his son, Jesus Christ. And then the fourth thing is simply, and it leads out of that, is revelation. This is one of the few prayers that we have of Jesus in the Bible. But as they are, are, are coming back, Jesus, in that same hour, the same hour that this mission report is taking place, Jesus turns and he prays to God and he says, God, thank you. What does he thank God for? He says, thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent, but you have revealed them to those who are little children. The work of missions is ultimately a work of God. We are just ambassadors, but it's God that takes the message that we speak and applies it in one way or another to the hearts of those who hear the message. He gives thanks that, that, that somehow God has made salvation plain to the simple, but he has hidden it from those who think of themselves as wise and intelligent. And he says even the disciples, blessed are you, or all oh, the happiness of those who have received the understanding of this great kingdom, this kingdom of God. Beloved, this is the background of this text this morning. Because in the midst of this missions report in this gathering is one particular man. He's a lawyer. And it says, in the midst of this missions report, in verse 25, behold, a lawyer stood up. So he's been listening to this. He's been watching this. And in fact, the lawyer is part of the mission field. 
Sometimes we think of the mission field as just being across the street. Sometimes the mission field is right here in the midst of us. Those of us who might be religious, those of us who might be lost, those of us who have not yet had our eyes open to see the glorious truths of God. You see, the Good Samaritan parable has been embedded into a theological con- um, debate and, and discussion. And this lawyer stands up, and he, and he wants to put Jesus to the test. He was a religious man. He was studied in the things of law. He knew the Bible inside and out, or the Old Testament scriptures inside and out, and particularly the first five books of the Bible. He knew logic. He knew how to use it. And he wants to test Jesus. And this isn't a good testing. Each time this word is used in two other places, it's always a negative context. One is when Satan tests Jesus and Jesus says to him, you shouldn't test the Lord your God. And in another place, we are told not to test Jesus. So he's not trying to do a good thing. He's trying here to set himself up to look good and Jesus to look bad. And his first sort of question is to Jesus, the first thing that he says is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And one of the important things to think about here is it depends upon what you mean by the word do. We see that at least three times in the text. One, in, in when he says, what must I do to be saved, in verse 25, then in verse 28, and finally again in verse 37. And, and this is a question that we need to ask ourselves. What must I do to inherit eternal life. Sometimes we give more concern to what we're going to eat or the profession that we're going to go into or the place that we want to live or the business that we want to buy. We give more consideration to what should I wear, what must I do for a job, what must I do for a living than we do for eternal things. He doesn't want to receive anything, though. He just wants to do something. He wants to tick something off a list. And notice what Jesus says to him. And I love this. He says, well, what does the Scriptures say? Beloved, that's what we believe, that the Scriptures give us the answers for everything in life. So Jesus drives him back to the Word of God. He says, what does the Scripture say? This guy was a lawyer. He knew right away. Well, the Scripture says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and your neighbor as yourself. He knew it. He had it right. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, then you go and do these things. See, the lawyer wanted to know what he should do once and for all to inherit eternal life. And it's interesting here, and we, we, we don't see this brought out in English, but in the Greek there's different tenses. And when he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life, he's got, uh, he has a one-time action in mind. What must I do once in order to inherit eternal life? It's like maybe somebody, and this is not a great illustration, but somebody who might say, what must I do to be married? And they might think, well, all I need to do is walk down the aisle, say my vows, and then I'm married. Those of us who are bright would know that that's just the beginning. That from then on, you're doing stuff every moment of the day in marriage. And he just wants to know, what must I do one time in order to inherit eternal life? He was a sort of a, a check-the-list kind of mentality. Jesus said to him, you have responded rightly. Do this and you will live. Jesus' response, though, is in a present, imperative, active tense. In other words, it's a command. It's a command that he be presently doing, and it's a command that he be presently doing continually, time and time and time again. So Jesus says, he says, I want to do it once. Jesus says, you have to keep doing this again and again and again and again and again and again and again into infinity. He tells him that you need to 
You need to obey God. You need to do it now, and you need to do it now and forevermore, every moment of the day. But this went right over this guy's head. Because he wasn't thinking in that way. He wasn't wanting to do that. He was looking at a way to somehow say, well, I've done all of that. And he was thinking that somehow he had accomplished the law, that if he could just do one more thing, he could take off another thing and be right with God. But it's the Apostle Paul who helps us understand how wrong his thinking was. It's the Apostle Paul who says, For no man can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. It does not make us righteous. Well, it's, it's in that context that we read these tragic words. But he desiring to justify himself. Do you see what's going on? Romans 3.20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in the sight of God. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. See, this man thought that it was through obedience to the law that he would receive salvation, that he would be made right with God, that he would be justified before God. He didn't realize that the law was just a mirror that he was to put up in front of himself so that it would reflect back to him his own sin and his need for a savior. He didn't realize that the law is like a plumb line and you put the plumb line down so that you can see that the wall is crooked. But you don't take the mirror and use it to scrub your face. You see, you don't take the plumb line and try to use it to straighten out the wall. The law wasn't meant to make this man right with God. It was meant to show him that he had no way through his own effort to be made right with God. And the terrible tragedy of this is, is that this man, his entire life, had been confronted with the perfect, holy law of God. He was a Jew. The Jews had been entrusted, it says in Romans 9, with the very oracles of God. The word of God had come to the Jews. They had God's revelation. This man was taught ever since he was a child to know the law, to memorize the words of the law. By the time he was 12 years old, he had to have memorized great portions of the Old Testament law. It had been put in front of him over and over and over again. And not only that, he'd become an expert in the law. He'd become a lawyer, one who had studied the law, who had spent his entire life getting to know the law, and this man had missed the point entirely. You know, it's like people today who who spend their time studying the stars and, and astronomy. And they don't see that the heavens declare the glory of God, that the skies proclaim the work of his hands. You see, they deny the creator, and yet they're studying this, this great glory of God their entire life. Or like a man who can, can study the human body his entire life and not see that man was created in the image of God. They missed the point entirely. And not only that, Jesus Christ is standing in front of this man. The one whom the entire law was meant to point to. 
That as this man read the law and he saw the words that he had just quoted, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, all the time, every day of every moment, he didn't see that it was impossible. I can't even do that for one minute. Let alone all the time of every day of every moment of my entire life. He was blind. And he couldn't see his desperate situation. This man was one breath away from eternity. From coming before the judge of the entire earth. The God who had given the law. And this man was guilty and he didn't know it. A lawyer. He's standing in the court of God and doesn't understand that God is going to convict him. That he is going to be declared unrighteous and guilty. And he will be guilty and God will send him to an eternal judgment in hell. And so when we see these words then, it gives us insight into what Jesus is doing because the very one whom the law pointed to is standing before this man and he can't see it. Jesus, the Word made flesh who came to dwell among us, the very embodiment of what this law was pointing to is standing in front of this man and he doesn't know it. Hebrews 3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The very perfection of God is standing before him and he comes to test Christ. And now, seeking to justify himself, he asks Jesus this question, Who is my neighbor? He wants to justify himself, to declare himself righteous, to declare himself right before God, He wants to prove that he has kept the law, and so he asked Jesus this question, but who then is my neighbor? Now this man had a skewed view of what it meant to love your neighbor as yourself. The Jews, in seeking to justify themselves, had to find a way to take this law and to tame it. They had to find a way to make it doable, and so they had concocted a system where they had over 600 different rules and regulations that they'd used to define the law, to put boundaries on the law, so that they could, in some way, by some external means, show themselves that they had kept the law. And so the law to love your neighbor as yourself had, to this man, become a love for primarily and only the Jews. So the neighbor didn't include anybody else. And for many of them, their definition of what a neighbor meant was only those Jews who were righteous. Only his few close friends who they themselves and and, and those around them, the religious leaders, well, I could love my neighbor. And so then, after he asked Jesus the question, it is in this context that we must understand this parable. But before we move on, I just want to Cause us to think for a moment on an application that may be here for us today that we do not want to miss. Because we're sitting in church. Many of us have read the Bible our entire life, have been taught the scriptures, have heard good preaching, have been consistently confronted with the Word of God, but do we recognize this truth? That no man will be justified in the sight of God by works of the law, by his own righteousness, by what I do. You see, this man said, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And the thing we need to do is recognize we can do nothing. Man in his pride always wants to do. He wants to say, what can I do 
to make myself right. And the Bible says clearly you can do nothing for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together we have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Do you understand that? Do you understand that because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the only way we can be justified is if we are justified freely by his grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's this that this man is missing. And so when we go to this parable, we have to keep this in mind. This man is in danger of eternal judgment, and Jesus is not about to tell him and give him some good moral advice about how to be a good neighbor. Jesus' point in this parable is to help this man to come to an understanding that he is a sinner and absolutely has not loved his neighbor. This is the point. And we will see this as we work our way through it. So the parable begins. And it says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And instantly Jesus has confronted this man with the narrow view that he has of what it means to be a neighbor. A man. Not a Jew, not a Gentile, not a Samaritan, not a rich man, not a poor man, not a righteous man. Didn't tell us his race, his social status, whether he was good or bad or foolish or deserving or undeserving. It's just a man. Do you see the all-embracing love of God that he is calling us to? He calls us to love any man. And all men who would come across our path in our need of love and grace. And so he confronts the man here. It's just a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now going down is a a fitting description. Jerusalem was about 3,000 feet above Jericho. So the the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a road that descended about 18 miles. And so this man was making a trip From Jerusalem to Jericho. Now Jesus gives us this setting here in the parable because Jesus himself is right near the location where this is at. If you look back to chapter 9 and verse 51, you find out that Jesus was near in a Samaritan village just prior to this. And he is now journeying and he is on a journey toward Jerusalem. For it said in verse 51 of chapter 9, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he had set his face to go to Jerusalem. And 52, as he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans. So he was near Samaria on his way to Jerusalem. And we find out after this parable that he ended up at the home of Martha and Mary, which was in Bethany, very close to this road where the people would travel from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was a downward road. And so then it says that among, he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, departed, leaving him half dead. This man was in a desperate situation. It says, Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Here we see the deadness of external, works-based religion without the transformed heart. Void of the love of God. These men, the priest and the Levite, were coming from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, Jericho was a city where many priests and Levites 
had taken up residence. There was over 12,000 of them, they believe, at the time that Jesus is telling this parable. And in Jerusalem was the place where they worked. A couple of times a year, when their division was on duty, they would go to the temple and they would serve God in the temple. So these men who are traveling down this road have just come from serving God, from offering up the sacrifices, from doing all of this at the temple. And as they walk by this man, they have no compassion on him. They have no love for him. They don't go to him. They leave him there half dead. And Jesus is showing this man albeit not coming at him directly, dead works-based religion, what this man was living in. Dead works-based religion, void of the love of God, void of the transformation that happens when people have come to a place where they recognize their sin and fall on the grace of God. And he doesn't say a Pharisee and a scribe. That would have put the man off. That would have put his guard up. That would have got him jaded. And he would not have been ready for what was coming next. And so Jesus is, is drawing him in. This man actually would have looked at the priest and Levite and said, yeah, I would expect them to do that. He wouldn't have seen it. He would have looked at his own self-righteousness and gone, well, yeah, these guys, they passed by. I, I would never do that. And it's at this point that we get to the key point in the entire passage where, where Jesus now is taking this man and he's drawn him in and now he is going to lay down the boom. And it's kind of like in 2 Samuel if you read, that there's an account there where, where David has sinned with Bathsheba. And Nathan comes to David, the prophet, and he begins to tell David a story. And he tells him about this man and how this, this rich man had taken the lamb of, of uh, a man, it was his only lamb, and how he had taken it from him and he'd used it and, and fed that lamb to a bunch of people who had come to visit him. And, and as David begins to tell the story, if you remember, or as Nathan tells the story to David, David becomes livid. He is, he's ready just to, to, to exact justice on this man in the story. And it's at that point that Nathan turns to him and he says, You are the man. You are the man. And David instantly is convicted of a sin. And this is what is going to happen here. Because the next words that come out of Jesus' mouth are, But a Samaritan. And if you know anything about the Bible, if you know anything about the culture back then, the Jews hated the Samaritans. They despised and loathed the Samaritans. We see this consistently throughout Scripture. As a matter of fact, that very passage that we were reading back in chapter 9, when the Samaritans didn't want to receive Jesus, it says this, And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? This was the attitude of the Jew towards the Samaritan. As a matter of fact, at one point in time, the scribes and Pharisees accused Jesus of being a Samaritan and demon-possessed. It's like they put the two on par. Demon-possessed, Samaritan. Or if you remember in John chapter 4, where Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus asks her for a drink, and she says, Why is it that, that you, a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink of water. And then in brackets, John has a little thing there after that statement. It says, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So do you see what Jesus is doing here? He places the Samaritan in front of this man right when his guard's down. He says, But a Samaritan. And instantaneously inside this man, all of the loathing, all of the hatred, 
Almost he's despising of the Samaritan rises up within him. And he's confronted with his own anger, his own guilt, and his own sin. And Jesus continues. Not only does the Samaritan, he comes along the road. He says, he came to where he was. He saw him and he had compassion on him. Where previously the priest and the Levite, it said, had saw the man and passed by on the other side. This man had compassion on him, the Samaritan. He went to him. He bound up his wounds pouring oil and wine. So he began to treat the man. He began to take what was a common treatment of the day uh, and began to treat his wounds and be able to help him out. And then it says he set him on his own animal. So he put him on his own animal and he walked alongside. So he took the hard road. He put the man on his own animal and walked with him, brought him to an inn and took care of him. This man is going the extra mile. And the next day, He took out two denarii, a couple of days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Here is the embodiment of what it means to love our neighbor. And here Jesus has confronted this man with his own sin, with his own hatred. As a matter of fact, Jesus says now, in essence, you don't love your neighbor, you hate him. You despise him in your heart. And then it says this. Jesus asked him the question, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Now there are a couple ways we can take this answer. And in some ways the way that we can see this answer may give us the two paths that this man now had to choose. He had one choice or the other. What am I going to do with what I've been confronted with? I've been faced with my own guilt. I've been faced with my own sin. And what am I going to do? Jesus asks him the question. He gives the answer. And he says, the one who showed him mercy. Now, some people believe that when this man said this, the appropriate answer would have been, Not the Levite, not the priest, but the Samaritan. That this man couldn't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. That is, even though he understood the parable sort of in his own mind, he hadn't been confronted and didn't want to admit his own guilt, and he wouldn't say the word Samaritan. The hatred for the Samaritan and the evil and the wickedness and the depravity of his own heart He couldn't say the word. And maybe this man, one of the lawyers, is amongst those who we see later on in the Gospel of Luke, who are the ones who put Jesus himself on the cross out of anger because he continued to confront them with their own sin. In Luke 19.47 it says, And as Jesus was teaching daily in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. And as Pastor Paul said earlier, sometimes as we go out there, missions is dangerous. Missions will not be, as we go out there and proclaim the gospel, always received well. Jesus loved this man enough to confront him with his own sin. Do we? Because if people don't come to understand that they're sinners, how can they repent? Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. 
And if our friends, if our neighbors, if our family members don't understand that they are sinners standing before the judgment bar of God and will be found guilty, if we don't love them enough to tell them that, do we love them at all? Do we love our neighbor? Jesus loved the man enough that even though maybe this man and the rest of his like got so angry at the fact that he confronted them with their sin over and over and over. You see this again, Luke 20, 19. The scribes, the chief priests, sought to lay hands on him. And at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. So Jesus had told the parable again later on in Luke 20 to confront these people with their sin. And they got angry and they wanted to crucify him. Luke 22, 1 to 2. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death. And really, if you look out throughout the pages of Scripture, you see that this is the trend. This is the pattern. What did they do to the prophets of the Old Testament? What happened to John the Baptist? As John the Baptist came preaching about forgiveness and repentance from sin and confronting people with their own sin. When he confronted Herod with his own sin, he put him in prison and eventually chopped off his head. Jesus, in confronting these people with their sin, ended up on the cross. What about Paul? What about Peter? What about Stephen as he preaches a sermon and convicts the Jews of their sin? They stoned him to death. And this is not, we don't confront people with their sin because we want to be vindictive or we want to be, you know, we, we, it's, it's not that. We want them to see that they are sinners in need of a Savior. It's Christ we want to point them to. And so Jesus consistently did this, and maybe this lawyer continued to harden his heart. Maybe he continued to be one of the wise and understanding and learned ones whom these things were hidden from. But finally, maybe in this word mercy we find some hope. Maybe this man, in saying mercy, maybe God was beginning to reveal something to him. And we don't know what happens to the man. It doesn't tell us. But maybe not that long afterwards, the man came back. We don't know. Maybe he asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I have no hope of inheriting eternal life according to what you have shown me. And maybe Jesus said to the man, follow me. And as the man would have followed Christ and become one of his disciples, Jesus would have made his march to the cross. On the way, continuing to tell his disciples what he was about to do. In Luke 18, verse 31, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated, spit upon. After they flogged him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. And then it says this, But they un did not understand these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he had said. But maybe as this man continued to follow Christ, he would have seen him crucified on a cross. And while he was on that cross, heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And maybe after Jesus had risen again from the dead, he would have been with his disciples in Luke 24, verse 44, when it says, Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets must be fulfilled. 
Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to him, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise again from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And then as Jesus began to unfold the scriptures to these men, what the law and the prophets have said, Jesus would have pointed this lawyer back to Genesis chapter 12. He said, I am the seed promised to Abraham that through whom all nations on earth would be blessed. Maybe he would have gone back to Genesis 15, 16 and showed him that Abraham was not declared righteous by works. But in Genesis 15, 16, it says, but Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Maybe as he was there, Jesus would have begun to, to unfold Genesis chapter 22, And in Genesis 22, as as Abraham is taking his son Isaac up the mountain, he has the wood, he has the fire, and Isaac says to him, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham says to Isaac, God himself will provide the sacrifice. You see, in and of ourselves, no one is righteous, no, not one. But I will finish with these words from Romans chapter 3. But now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray.